Hello and welcome back to the Scouted Football Podcast with me, Joe Donoghue. Uh, it's youth international season again, at least it is on this podcast. Uh, the South American Youth Championship, or under-20 Sudamericano, has just finished with Brazil crowned champions for the first time in 12 years with a star-studded team, uh, many of whom destined for European clubs, if not already snapped up by them. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome Lee Scott back to the Scouted Pod after no doubt a busy January window in your role as Chief Scout at Velez. Um, how are we getting on, Lee? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Joe. I think it's always international youth tournament time in this podcast, though, isn't it? It seems to be kind of the, the the way that podcast runs. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the DFS sale, isn't it? I feel like it's just constantly on. <laughs> Maybe. But yeah, January was, was hectic for me. Um, hectic, but good. I think we, we got all the work done that we wanted to get done, and we're happy with where the squad is going into the spring, pushing for playoffs. Think that automatic promotion now from Zagunda is potentially out with our reach. Antiquera and our group have um, quite a big budget, and they've done very well over the first half of the season. But we'll be doing our best to chase them down. Excellent stuff. Um, well, I'll be keeping an eye on how Villas get on in the second half of the season. Um, but in terms of today's podcast, a bit of background on the Sudamericano then. Um, this year's edition was the first one held since 2019 due to COVID. Um, Ecuador won that tournament in 2019 uh, with their, their very talented crop, including Leonardo Campagna, who, who ended up with Wolves, um, Jordan Resabala, Jose Cifuentes, um, who I think has ended up at LAFC, Alexander Alvarado, Diego Palacios, another LAFC player, Jackson Poroso and Gonzalo Plata, um, which formed the spine of their under-20 World Cup squad that same year, which ended up finishing third in uh, Poland. Um, in, 29, though, uh, tw- in 2019, though, we had Emerson Royale and Real Madrid's Rodrigo representing Brazil, uh, Thiago Almada and Julian Alvarez representing Argentina, Darwin Nunez for, for Uruguay, among many others. And, you know, going back further through previous editions of this tournament, you know, you can see why it's such a popular competition for scouts where essentially all of South America's best under-20s are condensed in one place for the best part of a month. Now, there were some caveats to, to this year's tournament in that the uh, the, the competition, the, the Sudamericano, does not fall in an official FIFA international sort of break window. Um, so clubs are not obliged to release their players. Now, most South American clubs do release their players. Um, but it's the European ones which tend to have a bit of, uh, I don't know, a bee in their bonnet about releasing youngsters to go and play in, in, a, in, a, in a tournament mid-season. Um, and that has introduced a, an interesting theme to to this year's tournament in particular. Uh, because over the past four years, and, and certainly over the past two decades, more and more young South American players have been snapped up at an earlier stage. Um, and have been have, have been transported to Europe, uh, where they now play for for some of Europe's leading clubs, um, and and some of Europe's lesser known clubs. Because the 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 advent of, of video scouting means that you know these these clubs with with smaller budgets don't necessarily have to fly all the way out to Ecuador and Peru and Bolivia anymore uh, to scout these players in depth. So that makes for an interesting um, a little subplot to this episode, but. Um, we're going to discuss some players. We're going to discuss the tournament in general. Um, Lee, I don't know how much you you managed to to watch of the tournament, but I'm I'm fairly sure you'll have been very clued up on on the players that that were there anyway. Yeah, I've been lucky. I managed to watch quite a bit of it, um, mostly back on Y Scout, to be honest, um, alongside 
normal work day to day, if you like. I actually know quite a few people who who've been out there for the tournament, and they they've pretty much echoed your sentiments there. One person said to me that he was at a match and he thinks that the crowd was made up some something like eighty percent just of scouts. And he said that there were scouts from from most European clubs there now. And I think that's. I mean, I don't want to get political in this podcast, but. I think that is something that has been almost a result of Brexit to an extent, especially in this country, that now, it, because of the rules, the new work permit rules due to Brexit, it's easier for English clubs, Scottish clubs to to secure talent direct from South America because of the way the point system works. So there are more and more clubs who are, I know Norwich City, for example, have two full-time scouts working in South America, I believe. Um, so clubs are much more attuned to the fact that they can tap into those markets direct. Whereas 15, 20 years ago, generally these players, they would come to a Udinese, a Porto, a Benfica, and you'd wait two or three years to see how they developed, and then they would go for big money. And now clubs seem to be dipping into that market directly themselves and, and try to find players before before they really hit it big and develop, if you like. Yeah, I think Brighton, a, p- a particular example of that. You know, you look at the the, the recent additions that, that they've made from South America. You know, I think it's um, Facundo Bonanotte, um, who was at this tournament. Um, and, um, you know, the likes of uh, Purvis Estupinian, um, who initially was signed by by Watford um, while he was still a youngster in, in South America. Um, and then, you, you know, the more recently, Julio Enciso, Alexis McAllister, probably the big one. Um, you know, Brighton have been really aggressive in that in that sense of of recruiting young South American players. Um, but in terms of the the actual tournament itself, uh, as I mentioned in the, in the opener, Brazil were crowned champions uh, twelve years on from their last Sudamericano under twenty title. Uh, and just going back to to that team in two thousand eleven, I had a look down the squad list, and I can see why Brazil won that tournament in twenty eleven. Uh, they had Danilo, Neymar, Casemiro, Alexandro, Lucas Moura, and Oscar in that team. So um, yeah, quite a uh, quite a successful group they've turned out to be. Um, but I think this year's tournament, it was fair to say that Brazil and Uruguay, who were the runners-up, uh, were the two standout teams uh, by by some distance. Um, you have the the top scorers at this tournament were were Andre Santos and Vitor Roque, both Brazilian, both scoring six goals. And then I believe there were three Uruguayan players who all got five goals each. Um, and I suppose the big disappointment of this tournament was was Argentina. You know, Argentina, uh, a country of rich footballing heritage, but um, and 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 with with a squad who you know you you could recognise a couple of names if even if you hadn't um, been you know with that that real granular granular focus on on South American youth football, you'd you'd have noticed a few names. Um, for example, you know the the likes of Maximo Perone, um, who's who's recently signed or agreed to, to join Manchester City. Um, they they didn't get out of the initial group stage, um, which was obviously um, a, a huge disappointment and, and maybe a shock um, for for the coach, who is none other than uh, Javier Mascherano. Um, after losing three of those initial four group games in that round robin format, um, but just in terms of the format of the Sudamericano, it it takes uh, where an initial stage with countries in two five team groups. This year, you had Colombia, Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, and Peru in Group A. And then in Group B, you had Ecuador, Uruguay, Venezuela, Chile, and Bolivia. Um, three teams from those five team groups uh, qualify for the final six-team round-robin stage uh, in which the top four teams qualify for the Under-20 World Cup. 
which will be hosted in Indonesia later this year. So there is a lot riding on on these um, on, on on this tournament on these games. So you know it's 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 unlikely that you'll get a dead rubber in 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 any of them. So that does make it a very competitive um, competition. Um, and I think I have to say, Lee. As as long time listeners of this podcast will know, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a Newcastle supporter. So when I saw that Venezuela under twenties coach was none other than Fabrizio Colaccini, um, I was absolutely delighted. I mean, they weren't great they weren't great at the tournament, I'll give them that. Um I don't think they scored from open play. Uh but it's uh, it was just a little bit just that little bit of nostalgia. <laughs> and quite rightly so. I, I haven't I didn't realise it was Colaccini, to be perfectly honest with you. I think though that Touching on Venezuela, they, they're actually going through something, a really interesting period in terms of youth development and players who are coming through after a long, long time when they were pretty much the whipping boys of South American football generally struggling. But now this squad that was at this tournament, and yeah, they did struggle in terms of finding the final, the final shot, the final chance, the final opening, if you like, in front of goal. But there are a number of players within that squad who are really, really interesting. And I think that European clubs are now becoming increasingly more aware of the Venezuelan market. Um, I know there have been quite a few transfers from Venezuela direct to Europe in, in recent years, and I think that will continue. But having, I think it's a sign that you're starting to get to get a little bit more advanced in terms of age now, Joe, that, that you're starting to recognise managers at these tournaments who you remember playing, so Colicini, um was it Maserano you said was a, yeah, was a yeah. coach and I think that generally once you get to my age you, you start to realize <laughs> that these are now the sons of people you saw playing at some point <laughs> I remember when they were wonder kids sort of thing <laughs> yeah Colicini in Newcastle was it was definitely an interesting story yeah absolutely um but I mean in, in terms of the, the 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 pedigree of these tournaments not to not to, to make you feel oldly but looking back through some of the squad lists you know you, you've got 2007 you had Angel Di Maria, Alexis Sanchez, David Ospina, and Edinson Cavani there. Um, 2005. Now, this this one really messed with my head. Lionel Messi and Pablo Zabaleta were in the same Argentina squad, which, for, to me, Lionel Messi is so many years younger than Zabaleta, but no, they're actually roughly the same age. Um, and you had also Ezequiel Lavezzi uh, and Diego Godin uh, in that 2005 edition as well. Um and then even the likes of, in 2003, you got Mascherano, Carlos Tevez, Dani Alves, Claudio Bravo. So looking back through pretty much every edition um, from 2001 to, to 2023, there are at least two, I think I, I'm, I'm safe in saying at least two players from each tournament who have ended up in the Premier League at some, some stage and often many, many more and, and certainly more across Europe's top five leagues. So I can see why some of these games... Um, this time around, had you know eighty percent of the attendance was was scouts, but from from your scouting perspective, you know, in terms of players, because to many people listening to this podcast, that the, the under twenty South American Youth Championship will be it'll be the first time that that they they're aware of it. It'll be the first time that they've you know listened to anything in depth on it. Which sort of players to you were, were, were the standouts for you? Well, I, I've stayed away. In preparation for the podcast, I stayed away from Argentina um, and Brazil. I think I expected both of those to have really strong tournaments and and I'm a little bit unsure as to whether they, they fall out in the hangover from the World Cup win in Argentina, maybe spread out a little bit towards what happened to, to the under-20 side at the Sudamericano. 
a student. You, you would think that a student from a professional basis, but that might be a reason that perhaps preparations weren't weren't quite what they should have been, and, and they were really disappointing for such a talented squad. And and Brazil deserved winners because they their squad is packed of full of players who I think are going to be really really good. I think Chelsea fans can be very excited about Andre Santos. Um, amongst others and, and as you said the two top scorers for the tournament both coming from Brazil Vitor Roque I think was the the standout player for me in the tournament as a whole but for purposes of this podcast I've, I've stayed away from those main nations and picked out a few players from from not lesser nations but well less well-known nations I think but the first one that I picked out was actually playing for Chile um who didn't have the greatest of tournaments. I think they they showed flashes of what they're capable of, but they're still not in a position as a country. They still haven't recovered quite to the levels that they were under Sampaoli, under Bielsa, when Chile were, were something special. But the player that I picked out from them is Dario Osorio, um, who is a 19-year-old left-footed, right-sided attacker. So... Straight away, when you, you say those words, left-footed, right-sided, you know that he's one who wants to come inside, wants to get shots off at goal, wants to, to attack diagonally. He currently plays in Chile for Universidad de Chile, um, another side who, who kind of fell on hard times a little bit in recent years but seem to be coming back. But they've always been a club who have really developed youth and developed young talent really well. I think Azorio is interesting because out of all the players that I've picked, I think he's the one that's generated the greatest interest already from Europe. There, there were rumours in January of bids from Milan, um, interest from the Premier League in terms of Spurs and Aston Villa looking at him. I don't think any of that became concrete because he, well, he's still in Chile and if any of those clubs really wanted to make the deal, I'm sure that they could. But he is a player that I don't think is going to be in South America for much longer. And he will, I think, make a jump straight to the top five European league from from South America. Um, when you watch him play, there there are elements of Arjun Robin in that when he gets the ball on the right-hand side, you know where he's going. And nobody thinks that he's going to attack down the outside, although I think he is capable of it. He just wants to come inside and kind of occupy and attack from the half spaces and look to get shots away. One of his goals in the domestic league was, was a stunning strike when he cut inside on his left foot from far out from an angle and he, he managed to hit the far top corner with a, a swerving dipping shot and that alone will have caught the eye of, of people who've been watching him and quite often in these cases scouts will be watching on video tracking data and Azoria's data is strong and the video is strong so he will be a player who's generating a lot of interest. But I do think that there are still a lot of raw edges to his game. He's still a little bit, not slow, but he can be a little bit casual on the ball at times when you just know that he's got the ability to to really grab a game and make something happen. But he almost likes to slow down a little bit and toy with the opponent instead of just bursting past. But He's a player who, who's already made his debut at senior national level for Chile. He has three caps to his name already, and that alone, I think, he will continue to be an important player for them going forward. Yeah, just sort of looking at, at Osorio's um, sort of his vitals, if you will. Um, 
He seems as though he's quite tall for a winger, and maybe that is that where the, the sort of the comparison with with Arjen Robin comes in. Because despite what Robin was like, you know, he similar to to Kulusevski at Spurs, you know, he's quite tall for a for for a winger who likes to you know cut inside and is very seems to have a very low center of gravity. And just looking at sort of Osorio's um, his his performances, um, sort of just on a on a on a stats basis, Chile only scored two goals at this year's under twenty. South American Championship, and it looks as though he had a hand in both of them. Yeah, his size is interesting. He, he's one eighty four, so six six foot one, six foot six foot one, basically. Um, not small, and he's not one who who is taller, but plays small. He is quite stocky and powerful, and that does help him when he generates power. Um, I think that part of his game is has been learning how to harness that because, as well as being I've said he can be casual, but when he clicks into gear and really goes, he can really move as well for somebody who is relatively tall. I think he's about the same height as me, and I'm confident he can beat me comfortably in a foot race. Um, (laughs) He has a a burst, and he's capable. When the ball's on the opposite side of the pitch, what what I always look for in a winger is the, the willingness and ability to crash the far side of the box. You, you don't want a winger who wants to kind of hang around and be slow and not make those off-the-ball runs. But something that is in Azorio's game is that he will quickly look to attack the far post, even the central area, as anticipating that ball into the area. And because of his size and because of his speed and because of his power and because it, people are now aware that he's generating a, a, a reputation now for being able to score goals, I think that because of all those things, when a player makes those off-ball runs, he really disrupts and causes issues for the opposition defensive block because they're very aware of the fact that he's coming in at speed and he's got this ability to finish. And it just it, it can create space within the penalty area for teammates as well, which is an interesting trait to have. I think that going forward, if he does make the move to Europe, you would see a player who's very much a, a modern winger and that he's comfortable playing in transitions. But I think that he does need to add and develop his defensive side as well. I think there are times when you really want to see him use that physical capacity he has to press and counter-press and, and look to disrupt opposition build-up. And Whereas he does make the movements to press, he doesn't always do it with the, the intensity that you really need to play in, in a big team, in a big league. And I think that that's something that coaches, when, when they're looking at him and, and when he does move on, that's something that his coaches at the new club that he moves to will look to work on with him. Just looking at, at Dario Osorio, he's playing for Universidad de Chile um, at the moment and uh, he's being coached by none other than Mauricio Pellegrino, the former Valencia and Liverpool player and Southampton manager. Um, so that's just a, a little interesting little bit there. But who else has, has caught your eye um, sort of from the... The, the less well-known nations league, considering that... Uh, have, you, have you gone for a second Chile player or are you going to go for somebody else? No, moving on now to, to the runner-up to Uruguay, who it's hard to say that they're, they're less well-known because everybody knows that Uruguay youth international tournaments are, are generally very strong. And it's funny because in Europe, you always get people making a big deal out of the fact that the likes of Croatia and the Netherlands in particular are able to develop so many players with a, a relatively low population base. But I think that Uruguay possibly outstripped both of those nations in terms of their recent history, at least in developing players and, and sending players on to, to top, top clubs. 
it's something that is uh, as a Scotsman I find quite upsetting because we could be doing the same thing in terms of developing young players with a, a lower population but it never seems to work in this country whereas these countries just churn out these players um, the second player though is somebody who didn't have a lot of buzz about him. He's not like Azorio. Azorio was, was, as I say, been linked to clubs throughout Europe. I've actually written about Azorio for Total Football Analysis before. If anyone wants to go and have a look for that article, I think it might be a magazine piece that I wrote in South American Young Players. Um, but this next player, there, there was very little buzz around him before the tournament, but there very much will be now. And that's Luciano Rodriguez, the, the 19-year-old forward at Uruguay who has just actually moved within Uruguay. He was at Progreso, and he's moved to Liverpool FC. And for those that don't know, there, there is a Liverpool FC who, who play in Uruguay. Um, not the famous Reds of Anfield, I'm afraid, for any Liverpool fans listening, thinking they've snapped up a, a South American wonder kid. He is still playing within, within Uruguay. And he's somebody who caught my eye more at the tournament because he was essentially... He was almost challenging himself to a goal of the tournament competition all of his own. Some of his strikes at the tournament were, were stunning. Um, the, the way that he can drop off, collect the ball and then strike from distance is, is notable. He can play as a centre forward, although he is under six foot, so he's not going to be the, the powerful, almost prototypical striker that we're seeing at the moment within European football, where strikers seem to be getting to the point now where they tend to be six foot two, six foot three, as well as being physically capable of running in behind and, and having a burst of pace. He's more of a, a Julian Alvarez at City, if you like, in terms of his stature and the way that he likes to drop off the front line. He, he's not somebody who wants to particularly play with his back to a defender. He'll drop off into the half spaces to collect the ball and link, but he's also capable of pulling off the shoulder of the last defender and making those those late runs, if you like, to, to break the defensive line and running behind. Um, what I really liked about him at the tournament is that you see he has that famous Uruguayan mentality and, and streak within him that he is fiercely competitive. He's somebody who, who will press and counter-press all day long for you, and he, he wants to win every single duel. He's, he's very active in that sense. Um, I think that there'll be a lot of clubs within Europe right now who are doing their due diligence on him and seeing that he's just moved to Liverpool. Now, the move from Progresso to Liverpool, you, you might look at it and say that means he won't move again. That That's not the case. He's moved to Liverpool as it's more of an economic thing than anything else, I would imagine. And Liverpool will look to give him that, that basis from when he can move to Europe. So I fully expect to see him move this coming summer. It's something which makes this tournament such a such a wild card because you know a player coming from the Uruguayan second division, Progreso are in the second division, I'm, I'm, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. Um, to 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 emerge as as one of the the tournament top scorers and also a, a real standout player in in a strong team as well, not as though he's playing for a you know a Bolivia or or Peru, um, and and being the only standout. You know he's he, he's more than pulling his weight uh, amongst a, a very talented group, but. Um, yeah, Luciano Rodriguez, again, one I certainly wasn't aware of before the tournament, um, one that the vast majority of people won't have been because, um, as as we say, you know, Progresso playing in the second tier in, in Uruguay. But um, yeah, I mean, if he continues that form with, with Liverpool Montevideo, then then yeah, who's to say that 
he he won't be making a move to to Europe before his twentieth birthday. Um, and just on those Uruguayan players, you know, you look at the um, you look at the, the the top goal scorers, and you've obviously mentioned Vitor Roque and and Andre Santos, the, the two Brazilians who got six apiece. But you've got Fabrizio Diaz, Alvaro Rodriguez, and Luciano Rodriguez, all on five goals, all Uruguayan. Um, and the next Uruguayan player to to well. The, there were four Uruguayans who also scored a single goal apiece. So, you know, it's it, it goes to show that there, something was definitely working there in, in the setup that they had, that they were able to get those three players on the ball in the in dangerous positions so often. Um, and they were also prolific with it. Yeah, I think, I think quite a lot of that as well, though. Um, there were a few penalties in there. So mm. that will skew the numbers slightly in terms of, of how many goals were scored from open play, for example. Um, but you actually touched upon the third player there. It's another Uruguayan in, in Fabrizio Diaz, um, who I was aware of before the tournament, but I didn't expect to be anywhere near the list of, of top scorers for the tournament because that's that's not really his game. He's a, a central midfielder, um, more of a six or a deeper line eight, I, I would say you would, you would call him. And he also plays in Uruguay still for, for Liverpool. So Liverpool and Uruguay are really setting themselves up as a, a development hub for players. So they, they take a lot of time, they spend a lot of money for Uruguayan standards in terms of signing young players from within Uruguay. They make sure that they give them regular first-team football and develop them before then selling them off into Europe. So it's kind of win-win for a lot of the clubs because the the clubs who sell players to Liverpool will do so with percentages attached, understanding that when the player then moves on, the club that originally developed that player will get a percentage of the deal and then obviously Liverpool get the bulk of it. Um, But Diaz is interesting because he's far more polished, I think, than, than... Either of the two that I've spoken about so far, he's somebody who I think is ready just to slot into European football immediately and start and play on a regular basis. Interestingly as well, he's got dual nationality, so he also holds an Italian passport, which will make things easier for him. Um, my, if, if I was a betting man, my preferred destination for him would be Italy. So being able to move to Italy and not be counted as a non-EU player for, for registration reasons would be something really, really helpful for him. But again, what Liverpool do really interestingly is that they give these players relatively long contracts, which protects the club and makes sure that they're maximising their value when they sell him. So I think he's under contract at the moment until 2025 or 2026. So he's on a longer term deal, although that will not be a barrier to him moving on. At the tournament itself, he was the the driving force behind Uruguay for me, whereas Rodriguez was all about you know the, the spectacular with the goals that he scored and the way that he was able to make space and, and find space and exploit space. I think Diaz was very much the controller for them. He sat in the midfield and he got possession of the ball. He managed to break lines, play longer switches of play. But then whenever Uruguay lost the ball, Diaz was the one that was organising everything from in front of the defence or from the eight position when he played there. He's very vocal, very authoritative in the midfield, both in terms of the way that he speaks to teammates, to referees, to opposition players, and in the way that he makes sure that everybody's where they're supposed to be. Um, you can see he he plays tall. I think that he actually captained Uruguay at the tournament. 
which doesn't surprise me because he's played quite a lot of internationals for Uruguay at that level. Um, but when you look at his data from last season, in particular that the new Uruguayan season has just started as we're talking, I think it's only a couple of match days in. So when we're talking about data, you, you're still relying on data from the previous season because the sample size isn't there yet. I mean, you'll look at Diaz's data for the, the season just passed, you'll struggle to find a more balanced and complete midfielder in South American football than Diaz last season. He he progressed the ball, he broke lines, he passed the ball, had good passing volume. He was also very good from an attacking standpoint in terms of getting into the final third, taking shots at goal, creating shots at goal, but also in terms of defensively. So his positioning, his blocking, his interceptions, his duels were all very good. And again, this is just all indicating and showing me that at 20 years old now, he is ready to make the move to Europe. Yeah, you're, you're touching on, on the experience that, that Fabricio Diaz has there and, and looking at his, his, his Wikipedia, he has, like, I think, near enough 100 um, first-team appearances for Liverpool, Montevideo. So, I mean, that's uh, at, the, at the age of 20 to still be, um, you know, appearing at under-20 tournaments and have that much first-team experience. It's probably not that much of a surprise that, that he's putting up such good numbers um, in, in last season as well. And you're talking about how he's not a... You know, it's a little bit of a surprise that he's nearing the top of the top goal scorer charts. I'm glad that you mentioned that he scored quite a few penalties because he did. He scored three, so I should have done my due diligence on that and, and checked because you know non-penalty goals and, and penalty goals are a different animal altogether. But yeah. um, you were talking about how he's more of a, a deep line eight or, or a six, and that got me thinking. You know, that one of the few players who I did have an understanding of their, their game before the tournament was was Andre Santos of Brazil and. You know, just in terms of, you know, if there are any Chelsea fans listening who maybe haven't had uh, a, a good idea of what the the one of their newest players, because God, don't we know that they've signed a few? Um, one of their newest players is is all about. You, you know, he was, he was Brazil's under twenty captain. I mean, even if you've just seen highlights of this tournament, you can see how much of a level above he is um, to his his age mates and his peers, um, and you can see why Chelsea have parted with effectively ten, eleven million pounds potentially rising um you know he's i think you could best describe him as, as like a, a box-to-box thruster you know he's dynamic he's all action but he also pops up with goals in in i mean evidenced by this this tournament with the six goals that he that he found um you know he's everything that you'd want in a two-way midfielder i think you know he's got good passing um he's an aggressive defender you know he's he's very he's functional but but without being flashy either um you know, and and I think that's important, especially for a young player coming from South America. You know, there, there seems to be a lot of polish to his game already. Now, there may there might be a caveat in terms of how well does he adapt from the you know Brazil's Serie B, where he was with with Vasco da Gama um, previously. How well he adapts to to the the, the increasingly structured European style of football. Um, but you know, he, he I think the experience that he's got already of a full season. As, as a as, as a Vasco da Gama player and then being Brazil's under 20 captain this tournament um and as well you know the, the, there's evidence that it's not just a fluke that him scoring goals on a regular basis um from from these deep positions um that, that he can replicate that elsewhere because um he scored I think it was three times in six Copinha matches which is sort of the, the South Sao Paulo youth championship um for for Vasco's youth team um 
And that's the same tournament where Anthony, obviously now at Manchester United, made a splash a couple of years ago uh, before he got his move from Sao Paulo to, to Ajax. Um, and it's a really, really prestigious statewide tournament. I think something like 120 teams enter it. Um, and obviously Sao Paulo being the biggest team in the region tend to do well. But um, Andre Santos... Uh, did 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 very well in in the most recent edition of that. Um, you know how how he's used at Chelsea. I think you know he's probably not going to be thrust in there immediately. But um, there's 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 immense immense potential there. And you look at the you look at the fee that that Enzo Fernandez has just moved for, um, considering that seven eight months ago he was moving for something like fifteen million euros. There's nothing to suggest that Andre Santos, if he adapts well, and that is the the big if. If he adapts well, that he can't, you know, boost his 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 value in the transfer market um, by by a considerable amount because he does seem to have all of those fundamentals that you want in a player. The only, you know, debatable element at the moment is just how he'll adapt to, to European football. Yeah, I think you're right. And speaking about Chelsea, I think with the Enzo Fernandez deal, what's really interesting about Andre Santos is that. He's almost the perfect partner for Enzo Fernandez, and that their their skill sets and the way that they play would really match one another well. Um, Enzo Fernandez, we saw clearly at the World Cup, and anybody who watched Benfica this season saw a player who really has the ability to create and knit everything together from the middle of the park. But in order to get the most value from him, you have to have dynamic players around him, and Andre Santos is a dynamic player. He's, he's very modern in that he is that, I'd call him a number eight, but he's more a, probably a six-eight hybrid because defensively he does get back and fill gaps and, and press and work and, and shift across really well. But it's in the attacking phase that he really comes to life and, and those runs from midfield with power, with pace, with, with good understanding of how to attack the defence in terms of which pockets and which holes to attack and, and to break through. I think that with a passer like Enzo beside him, you could really bring out the strengths in both of them. The, the issue will be, as you say, does he develop and, and acclimatise to Europe quickly enough? It's interesting because if I was Chelsea, if I was Benfica, and, and we were doing the Enzo deal, I think if, from Benfica and Chelsea's standpoint, I would have been tempted to to put a loan of on Andre Santos into that deal as well mm. to help him go to Portugal for the remainder of the season just to kind of cushion his entry into European football, if you like, at a level away from the spotlight a little bit more than he is in the Premier League with Chelsea. And, and Chelsea at the moment are, I think, a difficult club to play for, not just because of the, the uncertainty around Graham Potter, but around the way that they're playing as well. I don't know how much of Chelsea you've seen recently, Joe, but when you watch them play, they just seem very disjointed yeah. in terms of the decision-making that they, that, that's going on on the pitch. And when when you're waiting for the passes to be played and you, you understand and recognise the patterns that you typically see from a Chelsea side, none of those are there. It's more about an individual game. So for a young player coming in and trying to break into the first team, I think that it will be challenging for them at Chelsea. No, I agree with you. I think it's um, you know Chelsea have seemed they've been very individualist, um, as as you mentioned there, and I, th- I suppose it will be difficult considering that Potter is a manager who adapts his 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 tactical style to to the opponent rather than you know being beholden to a, a particular style of play. Um, and 
it's it's especially when a manager's under pressure it's always easier to play the midfielder who has just cost you 100 the best part of 115 million pounds or however much it was um as opposed to you know the the, the academy graduate or the or the young upstart that you've just signed from South America um and you have to imagine as well you know that the, the the idea will not be for Andre Santos to immediately go into this team so um yeah, I think now that you mentioned the Benfica thing, it probably would have been a good idea if he'd gone there. A, a good, um, a good touch point for for for, for gauging how well he's he is going to adapt. So, um, yeah, get missed opportunity, but you know he's still young enough. He's got he's got plenty of time on his side, uh, especially with those contracts that Chelsea are giving out. Um, in terms of the the other players who who you've um, you've been watching uh, this tournament, Lee, um, away from from Argentina and Brazil. Um, who is the? Am I right in thinking it's your fourth fourth pick here? Yeah, fourth and final. I think that um, I've already touched upon the fact that Venezuela are having a really really good period at the moment in terms of development and the players that are coming through. And a player who I've really liked for the last twelve months or so in Venezuela is the nineteen year old central midfielder Andres Romero. Um, currently plays for Monagas in Venezuela. He's another one who's already made his debut at full international level. I think he has three caps at the moment for the Venezuelan national team. Um, and he's just a central midfielder. I think where we touched upon with Fabrizio Diaz is, is more of a six than an eight. Um, Romero is very much an eight. He likes to be involved in the, in the final third and going forward. He's another one who who's quite tall, one eighty four, so just touching on six foot one. Um, it can be quite awkward when when you work in football and you work in recruitment. You get some people who rely on centimeters and some on feet and inches, and, and it, you learn how to do the conversions in your head relatively quickly. But you also learn that people like to make their players seem taller than they are. <laughs> I think I've lost count in the amount of agents who tried to convince me that. 180 centimetres is six foot three and it's, <laughs> it's not the case <laughs> and you can tell when you, you either meet the player or you watch the player if, if they are quite the size that the agents are trying to sell them as um, but Romero's a, an interesting one because he has a, a real eye for for goal both in terms of creating opportunities and creating chances and in terms of finishing as well Um a player who is equally comfortable dropping outside and picking up the ball outside the opposition penalty area. He's creative in that he can clip a pass over the defensive line, through the defensive line. He can hold people off when he's pressed and then get turned and dribbled to create space. And he's also quite comfortable and confident when looking to take shots on himself. He's not, I wouldn't call him a prolific goal scorer from central midfield. But over the course of the season, I think he would be good for eight, possibly ten goals, depending on, on the structure of the team that he was playing with. And it's, he's similar in a lot of ways that we talked about earlier on, that he's disruptive um, in the final third because teams are now aware that he does carry a threat and he is physical and he is capable of, of unlocking them. He tends to attract defenders towards him and that opens up spaces for teammates. I think Venezuela, as you, you touched upon, they struggled in the final third in terms of chance creation in the tournament. Um, I don't think Romero had the tournament that maybe I expected him to. I, I wouldn't have been surprised, for example, if we were sitting down post-tournament now and we were talking about Romero as one of the, the standout and clear standouts in the tournament. I don't think he was that. 
but I've seen enough of him before the tournament and I've seen enough in terms of when I do regular data checks from around South America. He is one that was very early flagged up because of his ability, again, more in the final third than anything else, but he has real ability there. He's another player that I think will make the move soon to South America, and to Europe, sorry, from South America. I wouldn't say that at 19 years old he is ready because he, he will be 20, I believe, next month. Um, similar to Fabrizio Diaz. Fabrizio Diaz in Uruguay actually only turned 20 last week, so he was 19 quite recently. Um, with Romero, I think that he will make the move to Europe, but a move to the likes of a Portugal or even a Belgium or a, a Netherlands would potentially make sense at this point from the Venezuelan league, which doesn't typically have a lot of strength and depth. But he's certainly one for, for listeners to keep an eye on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, he's one who I wasn't very aware of prior. Um, and um, just looking at his, his transfer mark while you were speaking there, Lee, um, intrigued to find that in uh, in Venezuelan football, he's got 24 yellow cards already to his name, <laughs> which is great going. Um, love a, he got that dog in him. Um, and... Uh, you know that's in roughly around five thousand minutes, so that's that works out at uh, a yellow card every other game. Remarkably, no straight red cards, so you know, that's good going. One one red card for for two yellows, but I think given how many he's um, he's accrued there, then yeah, fair fair enough, uh, Andres Romero. Um, just before we go though, I'd, I would like to to plug uh, Tim Vickery's uh, article on ESPN about the um, the under twenty uh, Sudamericano this year. Um, it 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 was. Prior to the last round of fixtures, I think it was published, but um, it does give a very, very good overview of which players uh, stood out to, to Tim, um, who's, who's been a guest on this podcast once before um, and is, of course, a, you know, the, the, the leading world expert in South American football. Um, but it lists some names on there who've been um, some very... Uh, ones who've stood out to him, you know, away from the the big two, if you will, just in similar to fashion to, to how Lee has... Um, He's gone with Justin Cuero um, uh, for for Ecuador, a, a, a target man. He, he described him as um, tricky wingers in Jaimor Medina, Alan Minda, and Jose Klinger, um, and um, left centre back Davis Bautista um, with uh, with Ecuador there, and and as as well as that, he's he's gone with uh, Lucas Asadi at at Chile as well. Um, so yeah, there is um, there's plenty to to get involved with and, and to to indulge yourself with if you um if you're that way inclined um and of course we'll also have uh, four of these south american teams at the under 20 world cup in indonesia later this year i believe that tournament kicks off in may so we'll uh, we'll hope to have a preview of the uh, that tournament with um on this podcast when um the squads are announced um, because I think we might see, in particular from you know the, the the South American teams, we might see some other names that are there um, because that w- that tournament will be taking place in um, the off season for a lot of clubs. So players who weren't released for for this competition might be released for uh, that, which will make the uh, the tournament even more competitive. But yeah, there'll be Brazil, Uruguay, Colombia, and Ecuador at that under-20 World Cup. Um, so hopefully we see the likes of Vitor Roque, uh, Andre Santos, uh, and all the players that Lee has, has listed, or the ones who have qualified, certainly, uh, in the finals there. But uh, Lee, thank you very much for, for joining me again. It's been a pleasure, as always, to have you back on the Scouted Pod. 
No, no worries. Thanks very much for having me on, Joe. Really enjoyed it again. Excellent stuff. Well, this has been the Scouted Football Podcast. We'll be back soon with more youth football-focused episodes. Um, I've been Joe Donahue. Stay safe, take care, and bye for now.